So the, the very first church I served at as a pastor was a brand new mission start in Brighton, Colorado, near Commerce City, Colorado, where the church is still located today. And I remember that when I heard that straight out of the seminary, I was going to go to Colorado to start a new church, my enthusiasm was through the roof. And as, as we have a couple of months to prepare and move out there, and I just remember I was so excited to help plant this new church and get it started. And I was so enthusiastic, I'm pretty sure I made coffee nervous. <laughs> I was thinking as soon as we roll into town, like the community is just going to sense that something new, something amazing is starting. And everyone's going to reach out to me and say, what is this, what is this that's going on? Um, but when we moved there, it was kind of quiet. Not much happened, but I figured as soon as we get services started, like our weekly services, like that's when things will really kick into gear. And so we rented out the community center in uh, that uh, town in Colorado. And I remember for, for the first few weeks, you know, we had our core group show up. And that was it. <laughs> Not a lot of guests. But then I thought, okay, this is a community center. Pe people probably think it's weird to, you know, come to church here. So I said, as soon as we've got a location of our own, and so eventually we got our, a storefront. <laughs> yeah, a storefront, um, a more permanent location. And I remember thinking, oh man, we got the cushy chairs. We got our own coffee maker. We're really going to have things going now. And I just didn't find the explosive growth that I was hoping for or I was expecting. Now, one of the things I often think about in my ministry is I wish I could go back to 2006 and tell young, naive Matt what ministry really is all about. I had this, I had this idea that because of me, people would come. But what I've since learned is that the true, accurate measure of successful ministry is not what I do. It's who I empower. I wish I'd known that sooner. Maybe you've got your own things that you can go back to in life and, and ask yourself the question, wish I'd known that sooner. I wish I'd known that sooner. Maybe it was a relationship that you got yourself into. And they seemed great at first. But all you saw was the facade. And they took you to a place you didn't want to go. And as you think back, you say, I wish I'd known sooner who they really were. Some of you have pursued a career path or even gone through a lot of schooling to do a very specific thing, and it just did not work out. And you, you say to yourself, man, I wish I had known sooner that that was not for me. And some of you parents, you think back at some missed opportunities to speak into the life of your kid, and now you see what the result is, and you say, man, I wish I had known sooner the importance of that moment. I wish I had known sooner. Now, we can spend all day thinking back at all the regrets we had at things we wish we had known sooner. But what we're doing in this series is we're celebrating the fact that maybe today God will share with you something that will have tremendous impacts in your future. Maybe today the wisdom God gives you will prevent you from getting five or 10 years down the line and saying, I wish I'd known sooner because maybe today is the, God, the, the, today is the day that God lets you know what you need to know. Because isn't it true? The reason we don't know things sooner is because we just don't know what we don't know. 
So for the next five or six weeks, we're going to work through a book of the Bible called 1 Timothy, and I'll share in a little bit why 1 Timothy is such a good book for this. But we're going to see a series of things where God tells us things in this moment so that someday we won't look back and say, I wish I had known that. I wish I had known that. And today the question we're looking at is, is this, is there grace for someone like me? And if we were to sit down over coffee and I just asked you, you know, what, what does God think of you? Is there grace for someone like you? Um, most of you who grew up going to church, most of you who know Jesus would give a very intellectual answer to this. You'd say, yes, there's grace for me. I know Jesus died for my sins. I know that I'm forgiven. Some of you, maybe if we were drinking coffee, you'd look at me and say, you know what? I just don't buy the whole God thing, but thanks for asking. Because if there is a God of love, I just don't see how that would match up with a person like me. But what I know for every Christian is this. Over my years of pastoring, I've met with dozens, if not hundreds, of people who are in a moment of crisis or a moment of darkness. And sometimes it has to do with a relationship. Sometimes it has to do with an addiction. There's all sorts of different reasons. But ultimately, the reason for the darkness is this question. Is there grace for someone like me? Now, I love how um, one author put it. This is Lewis Smeads. Uh, he, he wrote a book about the topic of shame and how guilt can really penetrate to a person's soul to the part where they, they don't just feel guilty about what you did, but you feel shameful about who you are. And he wrote this book about guilt and shame and grace. And here's an observation that he had. He said, what I felt most in his moment of shame was a glob of unworthiness that I could not tie down to any concrete sins that I was guilty of. Sometimes we feel guilty over something we did and we say, okay, that's the source, that's why I don't feel right. But the author acknowledges there are a lot of times in life where it's not a specific sin that's bothering us, it's just this glob of unworthiness. And so he goes on to say what the solution is. The solution isn't for someone to come in and say, I forgive you. He says, what I needed more than a pardon was a sense that God accepted me, that God was holding on to me, and that God would not let me go once he realized what was in his hands. So maybe you've been in a dark place where you could intellectually say, I believe Jesus died for my sin, but in that moment, you had serious doubts about how a, a powerful, loving God could have grace for a person like you. It's one thing for God to forgive the sin, but how could he possibly love the sinner who keeps falling back into it? So we go back to the question, is there grace for people like me? And what I've seen in my ministry is unfortunately people go far too long in their life not having a good answer for that. What I've seen is people who go to church a lot come to the end of their life and as they're considering the fact that they won't be on this earth much longer, they, they acknowledge, I, I just don't know if, if God could love a person like me. And then when I get to share with them what grace means, in their own way, they always say, I wish I'd known sooner. 
it makes a big difference in your life when you live as if God's grace is for you. And so as to not make you wait for the entire message, I want to give you an answer. It's number one. The shortest fill-in you will ever have at North Cross. Yes. There's grace for people like you. And the other reason this is difficult for us to put our arms around and embrace it is because when you look at everyone around you, you see the Instagram version of their faith. You see how, how nice the people look, how polite they are when you say, how are you doing? They say the right things. They don't let you see the cracks, just like you don't let them see yours. But when it comes to your faith and how you stand with God, you see everything. You see the, the motivations that aren't so good. You see the, the, the selfishness that you don't let others see. You have a front seat to all of your sinfulness, and you don't see that in anyone else. So another thing that I've, I've noticed among people is, you know, you can sit in a church and praise God and, you know, confess your sins and receive forgiveness, but all the while you're telling yourself, I don't think that's for me, the grace. If only they knew how horrible I am, how broken I am. We see other people's Instagram faith, hashtag blessed, but we see our entire photo reel the things we don't share with others. So as we begin this series, we're starting with the most foundational, important thing that you need to know sooner rather than later. Is there grace for people like you? Yes. And as evidence and proof, we're going to look at 1 Timothy, where a pastor in his 60s named Paul, which in the first century, 60s is pretty old, not old anymore, but used to be really old. An elderly pastor named Paul is writing a letter to a young church leader named Timothy. And in a sense, Paul doesn't exactly say it in these words, but in a sense, Paul is saying, Timothy, man, I wish I had known this sooner. Here's a bunch of things I wish I had known sooner. And here are some things that will serve you well in your life and in your ministry. And the first thing Paul wanted to point to was this concept of grace and who it's for. So as 1 Timothy gets started, you see Paul actually talking about what pastors do, what church leaders do. They take the, the law of God and they proclaim it to people. The law basically says, here's what you should do, here's what you shouldn't do. And so Paul says, this law is not for good people like you. The law is for lawbreakers. It sets up curbs, like, don't do this, don't do that. And so the law is for bad people. And Paul, as he writes this, I believe he, he sees the interesting thing about this. Because as he says, the law we preach is for bad people, Paul says, I am that people. I was that people. And so he goes on to tell and explain what grace means for him. And if, if you've ever wondered, is grace for someone like me? I hope you know Paul's story because if grace is for someone like Paul, I can guarantee grace is for someone like you. And here's how Paul begins this section today. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank him who has given me strength that he considers me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. That word trustworthy, we're going to see that come up a few more times. The, the root Greek word is pistis, which 
um, is, it can be translated faith, faithfulness, uh, trustworthiness, but he's going to come back to that word a few times, so just keep that in mind. He says, I thank God because the reason I can be such an influential church leader, and by the way, in the first century, the apostle Paul was the most amazing church planner, church leader. He, God used him in so many ways. And he says, I thank God, not because of my giftedness, but because of his strength that he gave to me. I'm so thankful he considered me trustworthy. He, he took a big gamble on me. And yet he considered me faithful, trustworthy to do what he had called me to do, appointing me to his service. There is no pride here. There is a humble, servant-like attitude of saying, I am here to serve not because I deserve it, but because of God's great power. I am so thankful he looked at me and considered me trustworthy. And then he goes on to explain to Timothy why this was such a crazy thing. He says this, he considered me trustworthy even though I was once a blasphemer. In other words, someone who targets God and seeks to destroy the reputation of God. Um, earlier in his life, uh, um, Paul, his name was Saul, and he was a persecutor of the church. He was a very zealous Jew, and he thought that this this Jesus movement was undoing all of the faithful, God-pleasing ways of Judaism. And so he sought to dismantle Christianity. Uh, he went out and he targeted Christians. He had them arrested. He was trying to erase this crazy Jesus movement. Uh, people who claim that Jesus died and rose again, he, he wanted to get rid of it. And the, in the process of blaspheming, he realized that he was actually targeting the very God whom he thought he was serving. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. He, he, he resorted not just to rhetoric, but to physical violence. That's who I was. And God looked at me, and I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Ignorance meaning I didn't know what I didn't know. I wish I had known sooner what I was doing. My ignorance wasn't an excuse. God doesn't overlook your sins just because you don't know what you're doing. I deserved to be targeted by God, but instead I was shown mercy. I acted in ignorance and also unbelief. Here's the second time we see that word come up for belief. God considered me trustworthy even though I was not worthy of his trust. He considered me faithful even when I had no faith. That's what mercy does. That's what grace does. And this is so contrary to what we see in the world around us. I mean, if you show grace to someone in your life or at your business or in your neighborhood, what does grace look like? Grace means maybe you overlook what they did, you forgive them, you move on, but if they do it again, there's a limit. Um, grace usually means that they come to you and acknowledge that what they did was wrong, and so you respond to their repentance with some forgiveness. It's okay, we all mess up, just don't do it again. See, usually grace is reciprocal after someone does something for you. Usually grace is given when someone is worthy of it, 
but God is the opposite. Number two, grace is given when it is needed, not when it is deserved. In fact, if grace is something that is deserved, it is no longer grace. God's definition of grace, grace is his favor given to you when you deserve the opposite. Giving you favor instead of punishment. And we're going to see why this is so important, but just at the foundational level, this is what Paul marveled at. I was an unbeliever. I was ignorant. And yet, God considered me faithful. And he gave me his power. He gave me grace when I needed it, not when I deserved it. And then Paul goes on. He says, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me. The Greek word order emphasizes the the phrase, uh, poured out on me abundantly. Abundantly, excessively, God's grace was on me. And so he says, it's not just by the skin of my teeth, I barely met God's standard, and I'm glad it wasn't any worse because he might not have done what he did. But he says, no, there was plenty more to spare. Even though I attacked his church and persecuted his people and I did violence, there was still plenty of grace to spare. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with, here's the third time we see this word, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. So here's where we see what grace actually does. Um, Grace actually gives us what it declares we already have. Grace gives to you the the kind of gifts that only a a person needs to deserve grace in the first place. It's so difficult to to put into words the the way that God's grace works because it runs so contrary to the way we see grace modeled for us in the world. And the alternative to to grace is guilt. You see, God could have come to Paul and said, Paul, Paul, you're a bad boy. You've been targeting my people. You've been undoing my kingdom. And now you've got a pretty big debt to pay. And so here's what you're going to do. Five years, hard labor. Um, You're going to be traveling a lot. So I, um, you're going to get some new sandals. Um, you're going to go here and here and here and here. Um, I need at least 10 law gospel presentations every day. So you're going to have 10 conversations with people every day telling them about Jesus. And that's how you're going to make up for it because you've really done some damage to my kingdom. And God could have come to Paul with guilt. And Paul would have been scared senseless to the point where he would have done whatever God wanted him to do. And unfortunately... In my talking with people, this is how a lot of people perceive the church. It's a place you go to feel guilty. And you feel so guilty that you you change the way you live. And unfortunately, I see this at play in my own life in a lot of different ways. I'm just, you know, parents out there, I think we can all relate that if you really want to change the behavior of your, of your kid, the last thing you do is just shower them with love and affirmation. If you really want to change their behavior on the spot, you use guilt. You use threats of punishment. That will change them in an instant. But God's kingdom, 
is not about getting people to behave in a certain way so that God is happy. God is more interested in restoring relationships. Number three, grace restores relationships. Guilt momentarily modifies behavior. Which do you default to at home? Which do you use in your marriage, in your workplace? When there's conflict with a neighbor, do you default to grace or do you default to guilt? And then we could ask the same string of questions about yourself. When things aren't going the way you want them to to go, do you apply to yourself grace? Or do you tend to dwell in the land of guilt? Never do we see Jesus confronting a sinner and making them feel so guilty that they end up changing their life. But what do we see? We see a woman caught in the act of adultery brought to Jesus, and he leads with this, I forgive you. We see people who have been labeled by society, sinners, tax collectors. They come to Jesus, and what does Jesus do? I forgive you. Now follow me. He restores the relationship because... That's what he came to do. In fact, this is what Paul gets to. He's like, Timothy, if there's one thing you need to know, this is it. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves everyone just to stop what they're doing and embrace it with all of their might. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom? I'm number one, of whom I am the worst. I think there's two reasons why Paul called himself the number one sinner, the, the, the worst sinner. Um, one is because he actively persecuted Jesus and his church. And you could argue in the first century, maybe there were a few other people doing that, but he was intent. He actually documented and got approval for his persecution of Christians. And he says, I'm the worst. But I think there's another reason that we can all relate with. See, as much as we can see the external lives of the people around us, you only see yourself for everything that's there. And since you can see every motivation and inclination and desire that you might not act out, you are actually the worst sinner that you know. And I am the worst sinner that I know. And so Paul says, if, if, if you're ever in that place where you're thinking, does God have grace for a person like me? Here's what he wants you to know. Because of who Paul was, here's the important thing. For that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the first of sinners, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. He's an example for you, an example for me. If there's any doubt in your mind, could God love a sinner like me? Paul would say, just listen to my story. Hear what I've done. 
And despite of how horrible of a person Paul was, he said, I didn't have to work to earn this. There's nothing I did to deserve the mercy and grace that God showed me. There's nothing I could have done. It was just one day. Jesus came to me and he said, I forgive you. And that gets us to a final point. Um, this is a, number four, fill in, is, is a r- rough quote from Philip Yancey, who had this amazing book about forgiveness and grace. It, it goes like this. God loves because of who God is, not because of who you are. God loves because of who God is. And it's not dependent on who you are. It doesn't matter if if I'm meeting you over coffee in a prison cell because of things that you did. Or if we're meeting in a church because you've grown up in church your entire life. God loves because of who God is, not because of who you are. Wherever you're at right now, God loves because of who God is, not because of who you are. Whatever guilty things that you're still not sure how God could forgive that, God loves because of who God is, not because of who you are. And I've encountered many people in their later years, their later hours, days, who never really talked about this. They publicly confessed, I believe in God, I know Jesus died for my sin, but they always had this doubt, could God love someone like me? And when I share this with them, that God loves because of who God is, not because of who they are, they all say, I wish I had known sooner. Um, Have you ever felt out of your league with someone? Like, you know, you're kind of in their presence and you're like, whoa, like you don't even want to talk to them. I see a few husbands nudging their, their wives right now. Um, good play, good play. Um, back in uh, 2003, I was at the seminary, and we uh, had this little gathering, this party type of a thing. And first of all, at the seminary, it's just all guys, like all guys all the time. And so it smells like guys. You know, we had our dormitory and all that stuff. And, and so um, there was that. But every once in a while, we'd have this gathering or this party, and people would come and spend some time on the campus, and for parties, a lot of times women would come, you know, single ladies, and so that was this awkward moment where, <laughs> you know, these uh, people come on campus. But um, I remember there was one party in particular where I was um, standing, standing at this party, and there was this gorgeous woman next to me. And I'm like, I am out of my league. And I'm like, it's probably awkward because she's, she's she, she came to the seminary. And it's a bunch of single guys who are studying to be pastors. Like, this is just totally awkward. And so I'm like, I'm out of my league. I wasn't, I wasn't going to say anything. Like, who am I to talk to her? And so I'm just kind of like standing there awkwardly. And then I'll never forget, like, she kind of moves her foot closer to me a little bit. And she says, so, so where are you from? And for the longest time, we were just standing there, feet next to each other, talking, and we talked quite a bit. And then about two years later, our feet were standing next to each other in the front of a church, and we were getting married. And I'll tell you what, we would never have taken another step forward if she hadn't 
asked, where are you from? If she hadn't taken that step closer. And I know some of you are feeling out of your league in a church. You're feeling out of your league with God. And you're thinking to yourself, I don't belong here. How could he want or love a person like me? But what I want you to know is that God put his feet next to yours. And he lived a life just like yours. And when Jesus came to this world, he didn't come to prove how out of his league you were. But he came to bring you up to his. And as a bride of Christ, you were brought into a relationship with him by grace. So that someday, anyone who hears about Jesus and has faith in him, someday we will all be up in heaven, way out of our league, celebrating the fact that we are there by grace. And that's what I hope you remember. If you listen to this and you let this idea go and you kind of go back to the way of feeling guilty, there will inevitably come a day where you're like, wow, I wish I had known sooner what grace really means for people like me. But what I want to end with is to show you the difference it will make in your life. Because here's, here's what I know about the way we live. What you do flows from who you are. Or maybe more accurately, what you do with your life flows from who you believe you are. And some of you may have been living your lives as if God hates you. God is absent. God is out of your league. And so you've been living your life in a way that's more self-centered and self-focused. And I want you to know that there's grace for people like you and people like me. And the cool thing about grace is that grace changes who you are. You are forgiven by grace. You are loved by grace. Who you were, and Paul would say this, who I was, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, that is not who I am anymore. Because by grace, that version of me was put in a tomb. And when Jesus rose from the dead, the new me was right there with him by grace. So would you give this some thought this week? Have you been living by guilt rather than by grace? Would you remember that grace is for people like you and grace changes who you are? We'll pick it up there next week as we continue working through the book of 1 Timothy. Let's close with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I pray that this, this preaching and teaching on the concept of grace is one that doesn't end here, but that you allow this beautiful, amazing grace of yours to seep into every part of our lives. There are some ways, I know for me, that this teaching applies immediately in big ways. But throughout our lives, grace needs to seep into every part, every corner, every nook, every cranny, because it's there where we see our full transformation taking place. You declare right now, we're forgiven, we're loved. We, we, are, we are good with you by grace. 
And the more we let that sink in, the more it will change the way we live. Thank you for messages like this in 1 Timothy where we can see just the full example of what grace can do to a person. How it changed Paul is just a preview, an example of how it can change us too. So let your truth ring through our hearts and our minds this week as we remember how we've been changed by grace alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.